From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Stay-at-home restrictions are about to ease in some of the state's most populous counties. There, and really throughout Colorado, what used to be innocent everyday decisions have become ethical dilemmas. I would love to like go sit on my mom's porch and maybe have a Bloody Mary for Mother's Day. I could skip that and wear a mask if I have to. Today, two ethicists take on your questions and ours, like if you've had the virus and kicked it, should you have carte blanche to go about your life? Then, the rush to determine which existing drugs effectively treat COVID-19. Clinical trials are going on as we speak in Colorado. And later, this week brought more clarity to the primary ballot, but it was a bumpy ride getting there. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And this weekend, some of Colorado's most populous counties enter a new phase of the pandemic, a loosening of stay at home towards safer at home. This is true in Adams, Arapahoe, Boulder, Broomfield, Denver and Jefferson counties. In these places, but really throughout Colorado, what used to be everyday errands stir up existential questions. Yes, I can get my hair cut, but will there be enough beds at the hospital? As Colorado reopens its doors, or at least leaves them ajar, two medical ethicists are here to help us navigate. Dr. Matthew Winia directs CU Center for Bioethics and Humanities, and Dr. Welcome back. Nice to be here, Ryan. Thanks. And Travis Reeder is a bioethicist at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, and hi, Travis. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. Glad you could both be with us. Let's jump right in with a question from Becky Long of Denver. Uh, As I said, Denver is one of the counties where stay at home is phasing out on Saturday. Am I allowed to go see my mom for Mother's Day? Um, She lives in Summit County, which is a high-risk area. She and my dad are both over the age of 65 and have some underlying health conditions. They're healthy, thankfully, and they've been you know, with the aid of some lectures from their very loving daughters, mostly staying home. Um, But I would love to like go sit on my mom's porch and maybe have a Bloody Mary for Mother's Day. I could skip that and wear a mask if I have to. Um, But I'm just wondering if that's really allowed or not. She is even willing to skip the Bloody Mary. Okay, I'll play hall monitor so that you guys (laughs) don't have to. Um, Even under safer at home, People are generally supposed to stick within 10 miles of their home, and that's expressly stated for recreation. This, this is a different category. And Denver to Summit County would, of course, be more than 10 miles. Becky acknowledges how hard hit the high country was. But Dr. Winia, jump in on what she's wrestling with there ahead of Mother's Day. Well, I think, you know, partly what she's wrestling with are the, um, are the penalties and some of these are health-related penalties of um, trying to stay healthy and safe. And so there is a definite balance that's going on right now where people are making decisions about um, what I would construe as their mental health and well-being, their ability to visit with family and friends, their ability to get out in nature, their ability to do the things that bring joy and meaning to their lives have all been um, you know, if not ground to a halt, they've been seriously curtailed. And that has consequences, um, including consequences to mental health and to relationships. So I think what she's grappling with is the, 
is the balance of sort of physical health and, and what level of risk to uh, physical health and well-being is it acceptable to take in order to get a benefit, which I'm going to say is is a also a health-related benefit, but it's more of a mental health and well-being benefit. Mm. And of course, that's a, a bit of an artificial dichotomy because mental health and physical health are, are connected. I also think for those of us with aging parents, this feels like lost time. You know, this is not time that is easily mm-hmm. recaptured. And I'm, I can't speak for Becky if that's going through her mind. Dr. Winnie, tell Becky what to do. Give her a, a concrete answer. That's what we want here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, so unfortunately, I don't think there is an absolute concrete answer. Um, I think you're correct that the governor's recommendation is that you stay within 10 miles. Um, of your home, and that would presumably preclude the ability to go up to Summit County for the weekend and visit with your mom. Um, On the other hand, uh, you know, I have to be a human being about this, and the reality is that, um, you know, I I don't know all of the circumstances here, but um, if you're in a car and you're not stopping anywhere, you're going straight to your mom's front porch, and then you're sitting on the front porch six feet apart, sipping a Bloody Mary, and then you're waiting a good long time before you jump back in your car mm-hmm. um, and driving back home, um, except for the possibility of getting in a car accident along the way, which you know we obviously don't want to do. Um, that doesn't seem, you know, from a sort of physical standpoint, more dangerous than walking down the street a couple miles and visiting with someone on their front porch. I think it's a really important point that you limit contact with others in that area. So uh, a stop at a gas station is an exposure, and that's something to keep in mind. Travis, I understand that you've joked with your colleagues that uh, you wish medical ethics were a bit less relevant during the COVID-19 crisis. Um, I mean, there's just we're just faced with this left and right I guess I'd like to turn to a broader debate right now, one that has become very political and get your take on it, Travis, this giant debate over quarantining versus the economic devastation that it has wrought. There's obviously more nuance here, but how do you see that tension? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I do wish bioethics was less relevant um, for exactly this reason. The basic idea here is you would be forgiven if listening to the media, you know, you thought this was a very clear issue, um, that quarantining was economically harmful, but good for the public health. And so then there's this very kind of clean issue of, well, do we save lives uh, by preventing COVID-19 deaths and additional morbidity, or do we promote the economy? And when you present it that way, um, it's it's a little too easy to feel like you might actually know the answer. Um, but I think this is just a phenomenally difficult problem. And the reason it's difficult is that it's not public health versus the economy. Uh, as Matt was just saying, there are trade-offs kind of all the way down the line. And so in the same way, there's a trade-off about going to visit your mother and promoting mental health at the, you know, small risk of increasing uh, physical health contact, you know, transmitting COVID-19. Well, we can think about it the same way that if we engage in social distancing in a really aggressive way uh, for long enough, which a lot of the country feels like 
um, you know, we've hit or passed this point, we engage in all sorts of harms that are not merely economic. Economic harms can have public health effects like poverty, increased risk for alcoholism and drug overdose, increased tobacco use, food insecurity, all these things that are straightforwardly health problems. Um, but also, yeah, the isolation and loneliness is not uh, unrelated to health, right? Um, there's mental health components. There are the ways in which this translates into physical health components by putting people at greater risk of addiction. And um, we potentially trap people in their homes uh, with an abuser if they're in a domestic abuse situation. So the question is just phenomenally difficult yeah. in terms of even weighing the risks and benefits against one another. Um, so, yeah, I do not think it's obvious how to weigh, quote unquote, public health against the economy. Now, if you trust the governor of Colorado, stay at home was never truly about reducing the overall uh, number of cases. It was about making sure that they didn't all hit at once and that there was room for you at the hospital. And uh, Governor Polis has told us that in moving to safer at home, uh, he doesn't see any giant difference in the total number of COVID-19 cases that might occur in Colorado, that this was always about making sure there wasn't a wave that overwhelmed the healthcare system. I think that that, too, is more nuanced, Travis, than just are we open? Are we closed? Do we care about the economy or people's health? Absolutely. So, you know, for one, um, if we were to overwhelm the healthcare system, then it's not only that you are more likely to die from COVID-19 if you catch it or have serious complications because you find an overwhelmed healthcare system. Is that you are more likely to have significant bad outcomes from non-COVID-19 related health issues. Uh, so, you know, there are reports coming in from all over the country about um, health points of contact that are not happening. You know, we're recording fewer heart attacks and no reason to think that they're not happening. Mm. It's just that people are not going to hospitals. Right. Um, so, yes, it is the case that overwhelming the healthcare system would be bad in a whole variety of ways. But I'm not actually sure that I agree that there's no chance that it would reduce the overall number of deaths, because if you slow the spread enough, then you eventually get to hopefully an effective therapeutic or a vaccine before you've reached the kind of numbers you would get if you just let the contagion burn through the population. Mm. Right. Um, so my hope when we slow the spread and we get people to take precautions very seriously and reduce contact, um, my hope is that we're buying the country time to develop the infrastructure that will make this less deadly and less harmful in the long run. And let's just be very clear that as so many of these populous metro counties move to safer at home, this is not a wholesale reopening of Colorado. It is still the idea that you are safer at home uh, and you should read your local guidelines to understand precisely what that means. I, I feel like the generational conversation has been just fascinating around this pandemic, Dr. Matthew Winia. Um, the idea that this has disproportionately affected older people has brought up really uncomfortable conversations about whether one human being, one life is less or more worth saving than another because of where they are 
on the timeline. Will you talk a little bit about the that aspect of this and whether is is it ageism or is this an important question for us to consider in a world of limited medical resources? Uh, the, the, well, it doesn't have to be one or the other, right? It, it could be <laughs> both, um, and uh, and probably is a little of both, depending on whom you're listening to. So I have I have heard um, and seen things on social media that I construed as clearly um, ageist, in the sense of um, you know some of the comments about uh, this is the young generation giving up their. Uh, well-being and their freedoms in order to protect the old people um, and that that is an unfair sacrifice for the young to protect the old. You're making some reference there to the fact that schools are not meeting in person and that the educational gaps might grow. That's one of the sacrifices younger people potentially are making and then younger adults perhaps making economic sacrifices. Yeah, I think the, the, you know, the, the a tweet that I'm remembering was something about, um, you know, this is once again the uh, the young people having to give something up in order to protect the baby boomers, right? And I'm I'm on the cusp of being a baby boomer myself, so so I'm sensitive to this. Huh. Um, and I do think that is uh, that reflects um, both a, a a real concern that uh, young people are losing a lot right now, and they are uh, taking a step backwards in terms of the economy and so on, which may not have as much of an impact on someone who is a retiree and not um, and not you know bringing in income each each day or or relying on that. Um, on the other hand, uh, I, I think that reflect that does reflect a, an ageist sentiment. Um, and then on the third hand, <laughs> if you are talking about how to get the most benefit from limited medical resources, um, many people who have started to look seriously into that in terms of developing triage protocols end up in one way or another factoring in age. Um, and age gets factored in either because people think um, that saving a young person's life gets more derives more benefit because you're saving more life years, um, or it gets factored in more bluntly on the fact that older people tend to do worse when they get this illness, and that's true even for healthy older people. And Let's... so there is something about the physical reserve um, capacity of people as they get older, that even if you are a healthy older person, the, the statistics we're seeing suggest that you can adjust for all the illnesses uh, that might uh, affect your outcome. If you're older, you're still going to do worse than if you're younger. And so if you're trying to get the most benefit from the resources that you're using, mm. you may want to give it to someone who has a better chance of survival. And this was integrated into the crisis care standards that Colorado was considering implementing if things got really bad in the healthcare system. Okay, let's get another listener question. Child care is a topic that parents of young children are really wrestling with right now. Hi, my name is Elizabeth Clark from Denver, Colorado. Um, and my daycare opened today, but they had an option where you can wait and send your kids starting May 18th. And so that's the option that my husband and I chose, but I'm feeling guilty even about taking him back um, in mid-May. Both my husband and I 
work from home. Um, and there's no pressure for us to get back to the office, but it's been really challenging trying to be productive during the day with a toddler. And so I dream of the day when he gets to go back to daycare, but I also want to make sure that I'm not putting him or my family at risk by doing so. Or the child care workers, for that matter. So many different parties to consider. Any thoughts on this one, Travis? Oh, I have lots of thoughts on this one. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, th- this hits close to home. My partner and I uh, are both trying to work and, and raise a six-year-old at the same time. And we think about this a lot. So here's one thing that I think can be really helpful to people. When you're thinking about ethics in the face of something like a major public health crisis, uh, like, for instance, a pandemic, there are various levels at which you can think about, you know, what ought we to do? What are our obligations or duties? Mm -hmm. And one is to frame it as a question for us. You know, what should we as society do? And that's largely a question about policy and widespread norms. And so that's um, going to be answered by your governor's plan, for instance, or your um, local mayor's plan or the institution, the workforce, uh, the employer that you work for. And then despite what happens at the kind of collective level, you might then be left with residual questions. What should I do kind of despite what the world around me is doing? And that question gets a lot harder. So one of the reasons we do the we question, the collective question, is to relieve people of exactly this sort of moral burden that the caller is raising. And so um, it might be the case that the right thing to do is not to open childcare yet, or it might not. Um, I think that's a really hard question. But once the child care is open, it really changes the individual um, dilemma. It changes the nature of the dilemma. And so your individual action is going to make a very minuscule difference. It's going to you know, change the risk profile for your child and you somewhat, for the child care workers. But remember, those workers are opening a child care anyway. Yeah. It might change the nature to which you're increasing the flood of patients that can go into the hospital or not, but your one exposure point isn't changing it that much. So this problem is really best solved by policy. And once the policy is set, I think your moral burden should feel less. It does not mean the question goes away. I understand her guilt 100 hmm. percent. Um, but I do think it means that, you know, we've kind of decided the question as a group. And now if you feel like, you know, um, look, we're going to start telling people to go back to work and increase their burden a little bit, but not opening childcare or schools for that matter, because, you know, some kids will have school, school age or parents will have school age children. Uh, I think that's a really unfair burden to put on people that we're going to, you know, increase our expectations of you and not provide you the sorts of uh, child care that actually makes that possible. So I think it's totally reasonable to think I need to send my kid back to child care because that's what we've as a, as a society have decided it's it's time to do permissibly. That it's OK to um, take advantage of some of the reopening that authorities, presumably with some medical input, have decided on, um, even though that can still feel really fraught. I'm fascinated by this ethical question. There is discussion. If we get to decent antibody testing and if we understand uh, what sort of shield one has if one has had COVID-19, that you might have a passport that kind of proves that you've had the disease and it allows you to move freely about the country. Uh, now, that's that's interesting because it, it brings up questions of medical privacy and 
Uh, again, we'd have to have lots more information about what it means to have had COVID-19. But Dr. Winnie, are you giving some thought to that? Yeah, this is getting an enormous amount of attention um, in the bioethics policy arena right now. There were two articles about it in uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association this week. There was also an article um, posted to the Hastings Center Report, which is a major bioethics journal. Um, and I think that, you know, there are a few points to be made, but the first one you've already raised, which is we actually don't know whether um, immunity is conferred by carrying antibodies to this. And so you would really, you know, pr- the first thing you would need to know is, does a passport mean anything? Yeah. Um, because it could be that you have these antibodies, but you can still become reinfected, Um and that does happen with some of the existing coronaviruses that cause the common cold. So we really don't know yet whether um, a passport would be meaningful. Um, and a second sort of basic thing that you would need to think through is how many people would even be affected by this? Because, you know, in Colorado, the best estimates recently are that maybe 1% of the population of Colorado has been infected by coronavirus so far. So that's a very small number of people who are going to get one of these potential, you know, certificates of immunity or a passport. Um, So it may be sort of a moot point if we're looking at that level of um, immunity, assuming immunity exists. And then if those two things are answered, um, you do start to wonder about would having a passport that allows you to go back to work, that allows you to do things that you wouldn't normally be able to do, would that prompt people to uh, to infect themselves? Would it cause oh. a, a, such a, a large incentive to want one of these passports because it be, it's a really valuable thing? That you might see, you know, the equivalent of chickenpox parties. Um, where people intentionally go out and infect themselves. So it could actually have a tremendous sort of uh, negative boomerang effect. Um, And then there is the inequality that has been seen when passports have been used in the past. That is Dr. Matthew Winia. He directs CU Center for Bioethics and Humanities. And Travis Reeder leads the Master of Bioethics program at Johns Hopkins. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with the hunt for an existing medication that can treat coronavirus. I'm Ryan Warner, you're with CPR News. The majority of CPR's funding comes from individual donations. Because not everyone can give, those essential donations mean CPR can be here for everyone in the state. It means that CPR reporters can continue to cover the news and emerging stories in Colorado, stories that impact all of us. And that CPR Classical and Indy 1023 can continue to fill your home with the music you love. If you are in a position to donate, it's easy to start making a difference at CPR.org. We've heard mixed messages throughout the pandemic whether drugs intended to treat other illnesses might benefit patients with COVID-19. Well, clinical trials are underway to find out and more are ramping up. We're going to get some perspective on this rush research 
from Dr. Thomas Flake. He's Vice Chancellor for Research at CU Anschutz. Doctor, welcome to the program. Good morning and glad to be here. I understand indeed that clinical trials in people take about three months for the Food and Drug Administration to approve, but the COVID-19 trials only took about a week? What, what's, well, I, what's being sacrificed when a timeline is sped up like that, you know? Yeah, so, so thanks for giving the opportunity to talk about clinical research, and it's been particularly heightened in this environment as we, we try to very quickly address how best to care for patients that have this disease. So one thing we've, we've said is that if we normally have a trial that comes to, say, CU Anschutz, and we go through the normal IRB, the ethical review, the contracting, all the regulations, this is a highly regulated activity, yeah. that would normally take an institution, our institution, most institutions around the country, three months to go from here's a trial to we can now offer this to patients. That kind of three-month wrap-up, ramp-up, we've really changed that to be, in some cases, a one-week ramp-up. So our research administrative staffs have stayed in a very long hours. The other thing we've done is we've said, rather than trying to open hundreds of trials right now, most of our activities are, are, are down. We're, we've reduced all but the most critical uh, research. So we can focus on a handful of COVID-19 trials with all of our resources. And again, rather than taking three months, we can open this up in a month and then give patients that opportunity to, to try those trials and look at those new treatments. So are you saying that because people are working extended hours and their focus is pretty uh, laser on COVID-19, that not much is being sacrificed for the patients? There's, you're not opening up some dangerous new avenue here? Is that what I hear you saying? Exactly right. I think all the normal safeguards are in place, but it's, again, by focusing and by people working long hours, we're able to open those trials. Now, the other end of this is the readout. So, again, what would normally take maybe a year to complete a trial, have it presented at a national meeting, receive feedback, present it to a peer-reviewed journal, that review process happens and is published. What we're seeing from a lot of these reports is an anecdotal report or a trial that's been posted that hasn't gone through the normal peer review. It's a it's a, a partial result of a trial. Things that we wouldn't normally see, and that's in the back end of this when we get the data, how well should that be vetted, and how do we interpret the, the data points that are coming out right now with COVID-19? Okay, so th- it sounds like those are still unanswered questions as these potential therapies emerge. And let me just say, there are multiple paths here. So a vaccine is one path, a cure is another, and therapies. Talk about how important the path of an existing drug therapy uh, used for another illness, but that might apply to COVID-19. Talk about how important that path is in, in this pandemic. Yeah, so very good questions. There's a couple of major ways we're trying to approach clinical research this area. One is to take drugs that directly impact and clear the virus, antiviral drugs. So think of for a bacterial infection of antibiotics. You also have another class of drugs beyond those antivirals that are trying to treat the inflammatory part of this. So those are treating some of the downstream sequelae of this and so forth. Then you have uh, vaccines in light of it. Now, for example, remdesivir has received a fair amount of press and interest in the last week or two with some of those early results, as I mentioned, have come out in partial form, I would say. That's a drug that was initially developed years ago for Ebola and didn't necessarily work terrifically well against Ebola, but that mechanism that they developed seemed to be one that we could very quickly cross over to to the COVID-19 pandemic and look at it. So here's something that's on the shelf. There's safety data. There's dosing data. And that's one of the sort of trials that when it came along in a week, if we got that packet with all the existing safety data, we could very quickly open a trial with the sponsor and go. So that's one of the advantages to using existing drugs that are already on the shelf. Now, are you doing trials with remdesivir in particular? 
We are. We have a okay. couple of trials open with that specific drug. And is there anything you can say about it? Yeah, so those trials haven't, we don't have any sort of definitive data. But one thing I'd point out is, again, there's been some press around a specific trial with remdesivir. We've looked at that. The number of days that patients are reported to have spent in the hospital fell from something in the order of 15 to 11 days, which we can see the advantage of that, better outcomes, people in the hospital less long. When you take a drug like that, you'd look at, you know, severe, severely involved patients, patients with intermediate symptoms. Perhaps you could even look at patients that are outpatients. So they have a mild form, but you want to prevent them from progressing and coming to the hospital. One data point at one trial might be interesting, but it's looking across these different patient groups that are going to give us a much clearer picture, I think, of, of that drug and other drugs. Okay, and at CU, you're helping essentially take a snapshot that adds to the larger picture. Another medication that's mentioned a lot is hydroxychloroquine, um, which has been used to treat malaria. Uh, the president, in particular, has touted it as a possible way to fight COVID-19. Where, where does research stand on this one? Is Is there research going into hydroxychloroquine in Colorado? Yeah, so this one is similar to what we just mentioned. It's a drug that has been around for a long time and has a different indication um, in the infectious disease world. And there was some initial data from China that was maybe limited, but then some came out from, from Europe, which was more of interesting. But again, I'd point out that the normal process we have for releasing data and vetting it and so forth wasn't necessarily followed. This was a maybe a partial result or mm-hmm. results that weren't completely peer-reviewed. Then some additional American data has come back, maybe pushing in the direction of being less uh, encouraging around that. Um, there are still several trials we've been looking at in that space, randomized trials. Some of those are sponsored by the NIH and associated groups, so uh, well-founded groups. And the question is, as the data we have mature and, re- and received additional vetting, I think the community will have to decide, are additional trials needed? Is there a definitive answer or not? And one of the real challenges I've seen in this environment is trying to evaluate the data that comes out that may not go through those normal processes that we have, just in the interest of getting data out quickly to investigators and researchers to process. So tell us about some of the other paths that uh, you're pursuing at CU in terms of clinical trials, perhaps other clinical trials you know going on in Colorado. So one other thing I'll mention is if you look at the most severely impacted patients with this, those patients that are unfortunately on a ventilator in the ICU and have severe lung injury or sometimes severe cardiac injury, one thing that seems to be emerging is that they have what I'll call an inflammatory storm. We would also call it a cytokine storm, but there's a very kind of hyper-inflammatory state that's going on that's damaging the lungs and heart and other things. So if you can't directly impact the virus or if, if that's something you you could then shift to say, well, let's if the sequelae, if the downstream impact of this is this hyper-inflammatory state, can we use very specific anti-inflammatories to do that? So we have a number of groups and a trial or two now looking at that sort of thing, essentially treating the downstream part of this. And if you could preserve lung function and heart function, more people could survive this. The other thing I'll mention is convalescent blood. Um, the yeah. idea that when somebody is infected and they survive and they recover, their body, in most infectious diseases, will develop antibodies that would protect them. Uh, these antibodies would protect them from reinfection and give them some immunity. What we don't know is if people develop those, if they develop them, how long they're, they're, they exist in the body and how robust that response is. But traditionally, that's an avenue we've looked at. In the past, and going back maybe even 100 years, you'll see that transfusion-type approaches have taken the blood from a recovered person and give it to someone that's in the throes of this and trying to help them. So we're in a structured way developing, and that's a, a trial throughout UC Health, actually, uh, or I would say a process or an effort across UC Health to try to use such blood in these patients in a very careful and regulated way. I want to talk a little bit about consent, um, because people have to consent, of course, to uh, being a part of a trial. 
is consent kind of reduced or or put in quotation marks during a pandemic? Like, um, do people actually feel more pressure than they would in any other scenario to say yes, even if the chances of something working are slim? It's a very important question. So I'm glad you brought this up. Um, and one thing I want to emphasize, even in, when we're able to open a trial in a week, it goes through all the, the usual ethical concerns. We call the Institutional Review Board of the IRB is involved. And in all cases, patients would have a, a sense to consent. There is an emergency consent process, which happens very rarely and is not used, being used in most of these cases. At least mm. we're not using this. We're still trying to use either involve family members if the patient can't do it, for example, or in almost all cases, interacting with the patient and making sure that they have all the normal safeguards, which would include reviewing a consent, asking questions, receiving a copy of a consent afterwards, and these sorts of things. So all those usual safeguards are being reviewed. And I mean, one modification might be just transferring papers <laughs> out of a room. That was an interesting part of this. How do, you, how do you do that when there's an infectious disease risk to taking a paper out of a room that people have signed and things like that? Yeah. We work through those in different ways. Okay. Dr. Flake, I can imagine, uh, I don't have to imagine, I can, I can say for myself that if I got COVID-19 and I were hospitalized, I'd want to be screaming, again, personally from the rooftops, hey, anything you got, even if it's experimental, use on me. Um, just bef before we go, a, a kind of brass tacks question. Is there a way to proclaim as a patient, do whatever you can? Um, is that something that should be in my advanced directive? Is it something I should scream uh, while I'm being gurneyed down the hallway? Again, thank you for this question. I, w I would say that we have, um, a so again, at CWEDGES, we have hundreds and hundreds of clinical trials open, cardiovascular, oncology, different sorts of things. Patients' awareness, it's through clinical trials. So think right now for COVID, every drug that you see that's developed or news about us means through a clinical trial of some sort. Every new drug people get other diseases goes through a clinical trial. So I think to ask that question of a provider, if I were a patient in the hospital right now, I would tell my provider, I'm interested in looking at investigational um, efforts underway for COVID-19. Please let me know if those are available. You can go to a site called clinicaltrials.gov, which is maintained by the federal government and is a great repository. You can put in your disease, your location, and that can help you find trials yourself. But patients have to advocate for that. In some cases, if the provider is not involved in a cl clinical trial, it might be additional effort for them to find that, make that connection, and bring people in. So I think in so much of what we do, patients have to be an advocate uh, for themselves. I would say in the COVID pandemic and certainly beyond for all the other things that we need to improve health-wise. Well, that's actionable advice. Thanks so much, Dr. Flake. It is my pleasure, and thank you for focusing on this. Dr. Thomas Flake, Vice Chancellor for Research at CU Anschutz. He's leading a team of clinical trials into existing pharmaceuticals in an effort to find treatments for COVID-19. When we come back, coronavirus makes it even trickier for political candidates to land on the ballot and to campaign when they do. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Listen to CPR News and get the word on what's happening all around the state. And visit denverite.com to get even more news from the Mile High City. Hi, I'm Anna Campbell, editor of Denverite, and you'll find our small but mighty reporting team all over town, bringing you the useful and delightful news you need to live, work, and play in Denver. Get the daily Denverite newsletter delivered straight to your inbox every morning. Sign up at denverite.com. 
Colorado already held its presidential primary, but there's another primary for state races at the end of June. And there's been a lot of kerfuffle over who lands on that ballot. CPR's Benta Berkland has been following the story, which really intensified this week. Hi, Benta. Hi, Ryan. And I hearken back to Monday when you were on the show to talk about uh, probably the biggest fight, which Democratic candidates will be included in the Senate primary. Uh, For those who missed it, catch us up on that quickly. Basically, five candidates who didn't meet the legal thresholds of support went to court separately, uh, each arguing extraordinary circumstances um, of the pandemic meant they should be allowed on the ballot. A Denver District Court judge agreed in three cases that candidates had gathered enough signatures to qualify even though they turned in fewer than the state requires. And then the state appealed to the Colorado Supreme Court, which earlier this week reversed that lower court ruling and took those candidates off the ballot. So it has been a roller coaster of a week for those candidates who thought that their political hopes had been reinvigorated and then dashed. What was the court's reasoning in the end that they should not be on the ballot? Well, the state Supreme Court said the number of signatures required is set in law and it can't just be waived due to circumstances. And the the court acknowledged that the global pandemic made the situation difficult, but said any changes to the number of signatures would need the state legislature to act. And the three candidates, State House candidate Maya Wheeler and Democratic Senate candidates Lorena Garcia and Michelle Ferrigno Warren, were definitely disappointed with that interpretation. And here's Garcia, and she's talking about why she thinks COVID-19 derailed her signature gathering campaign. Well, I wasn't even requiring my staff to continue if they didn't feel safe. And so it just got to the point where we lost about two-thirds of our volunteers in those last two weeks, and we did everything we could. Okay, so after all this drama, do I have it right that the only Democrats on the Senate ballot now are former Governor John Hickenlooper and former House Speaker Andrew Romanoff? That's right. Garcia disputed the Colorado Supreme Court ruling, and she asked the federal courts to intervene. And last night, the U.S. District Court denied Garcia's request. Uh So the Secretary of State has certified the ballot uh, without her name on it. This week began with a fight over a Democratic primary race, but at the end of the week put the spotlight on a primary conflict among Republicans, this time over whether a state Senate candidate should be on the ballot, Benta. Right. And I also wanted to explain there's two ways for candidates to get on the primary ballot. You can collect signatures from voters or you can get support through the party assembly process. The Democratic court cases were mostly over the signature gathering. This Republican lawsuit focused on how the assembly works. And in that process, a candidate needs at least, uh, what is it, 30 percent support at an assembly to qualify, right? Yes, that's right. And so the race we're talking about is for a state Senate seat in Colorado Springs. Two Republicans going for it were a current state representative, Larry Liston, and a party activist named David Stiver. At the district assembly, Stiver only got 24% of the vote, so not enough to qualify. But Stiver's campaign argued that the assembly, which was held online and virtually, was flawed in several ways and that he should be added to the ballot. And the Colorado GOP Central Committee looked into it and agreed that there were irregularities and ordered the local party official overseeing the Senate district to add Stiver's name to the ballot. Ordered the officials to do that, just declaring that a candidate should have made it and adding them to the ballot. 
And that, that's kind of where the controversy was. The local chairman said that that would be illegal and he'd be signing a false affidavit to say that Stiver got 30 percent support when he didn't. And the vice chair of the Senate district filed a lawsuit to prevent Stiver from getting on the ballot. And a Denver judge agreed that local officials shouldn't be forced to submit something knowingly false. And the state Supreme Court let that stand. I mean, does that perhaps reflect poorly on the GOP Central Committee, like they were just asking someone to falsify assembly results? It's somewhat of a gray area because state parties do have the authority to resolve organizational disputes and political parties run these assemblies. The Republican Party chair, Congressman Ken Buck, and the state party maintained that it, it was up to the GOP to decide whether this candidate should be on the primary ballot. But the vice chair of the Senate district, Carl Schneider, who filed that lawsuit, said that authority doesn't override state law. And he disputed that this assembly was run poorly. It was done fairly and honestly. And the delegates' voices and votes were counted accurately. And the votes were what they were. And Mr. Stiver did not meet the 30 percent. And the court agreed with Schneider and ruled against the Colorado Republican Party. So this does set some more guidance moving forward that state parties, either the Democratic Party or Republican, cannot overturn a result at an assembly to put a candidate on the ballot if that candidate's not meeting the minimum threshold. Okay, so to be very clear, Stiver will not be on the ballot. That's right. Okay. Uh, well, two very different fights that we've talked about this week over who should be on primary ballots. But it, it does strike me, Benta, that the common thread here is the coronavirus pandemic and uh, candidates and party officials operating in an extraordinary time. That's right. It came at this critical time for candidates who are trying to, to gather their final signatures or go through this assembly process. Lawmakers had to pass rules to allow the assemblies to be done virtually. So, It appears right now the courts are saying, despite these extraordinary circumstances, candidates must meet the requirements set out in law. There's a bright line there. Benta, thanks so much for this. Thanks, Ryan. A picture of how much can change over a week or during the pandemic over the course of a day or hours. CPR Public Affairs reporter Benta Berkland. She's also one of the hosts of our politics podcast, Purplish, which I'm excited to announce returns with a new episode next week looking ahead to the brutal budget cuts that Colorado now faces because of the pandemic. In a typical election year, of course, we'd be hearing a lot of this right now. Good evening, Colorado! How's everybody doing? Republican Senator Cory Gardner there at a February rally for President Trump. But the days of big rallies are gone for now. In the age of coronavirus, campaigns have had to adapt just like the rest of us, and move to the digital realm. From Washington, D.C., CPR's Caitlin Kim reports. It might be cliche, but shaking hands, knocking on doors, and kissing babies is what candidates seeking office usually do on the campaign trail. But this is how Colorado Senate campaigns sound these days. Here we go. Good afternoon, and I want to thank everyone who's uh, tuned in. Thank you for... Uh, I want to thank the two people who nominated me for this re-election campaign, Mesa County Commissioner. Uh, We're joined today by a distinguished panel on the question, how can we help small businesses and their employees? That was former Colorado House Speaker Andrew Romanoff, Senator Cory Gardner, and former Governor John Hickenlooper. Their campaigns, like campaigns all across the country, from student body president to those seeking the presidency, are turning to Zoom, Facebook, and other digital platforms to connect with voters who are staying at home. 
Hickenlooper says this campaign is unlike any he's done before. It's just a completely different uh, process, and we've changed our entire attitude. Hickenlooper admits transitioning to video town halls, rallies, and organizing events didn't come naturally. But he's acclimated, just like everyone else, to this new reality. And he says it is possible to have some of the same meaningful discussions you'd have meeting voters face-to-face. People do begin to let their guard down, and you begin to get back into that kind of more intimate discussion with people about their household finances, the things that really matter to them. But as much as candidates are putting a positive spin on virtual campaigning, veteran Republican political consultant Tyler Sandberg says something does get lost when you go virtual. My sense is it doesn't have the same kind of pizzazz or engagement that an in-person rally will. Thousands may join virtual town halls, but will candidates get actual voter support at the polls when they haven't met face-to-face? Sandberg isn't sure. Hickenlooper's main challenger for the Democratic nomination for senator is Andrew Romanoff. He's trying to replicate the one-on-one connection via text message. I spend just about every waking hour of every day texting voters. I text about 12,000 people a day. Many of them reply. But instead of a campaign stump speech via emoji, Romanoff is trying to connect those voters to resources, whether it be mental health care or navigating the unemployment system. So it has been a profoundly personal experience. I'm trying to make sure that people can weather this storm. You hear this from a lot of the candidates currently running for office. Challengers have become quasi-social workers, helping where and how they can. Because when it comes down to it, the biggest challenge to running for office these days hasn't been the technology. It's been interest. Again, Tyler Sandberg. People just aren't thinking about politics much right now. Um, They're really more focused on how they're going to put food on the table, when can they go back to their job, when can they see their family or friends again. To meet voters where they are, campaigns have had to transition from selling future proposals to offering present-day help. One thing he is sure of, people are focused on the coronavirus response. And that, says Sandberg, gives current office holders a leg up. Because you have these town halls saying, how can I help with COVID? Well, incumbents actually can help. They can contact different government departments. They can help you navigate the bureaucracy. But a challenger right now, they can't do anything like that. That's something Republican Senator Cory Gardner is doing. The Senate race will be the most closely watched race in Colorado this November. His campaign manager, Casey Contras, has been trying to figure out how to contact and connect with voters in the virtual space. And he says it's helped that Gardner already uses these platforms as part of his day job. The most important thing for for everything is a senator doing his job as a senator. And I think he is he's talked about how he's already contacted nearly a million constituents using a lot of these platforms. But veteran Democratic political strategist Ted Trimpa says incumbency cuts both ways with voters. Everybody's paying attention because they're so upset about COVID. They want to make sure that their voice is heard. So no matter how many virtual events are held, the real decider may be how people feel about the federal coronavirus response come November. In Washington, D.C., I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. Finally today, the message remains to stay at home if at all possible which the Cullinan family has been doing in Lone Tree. They just happen to have a five-room recording studio in their house. In normal times, their dad, Corey, visits schools as Dr. Noise and records music meant to inspire creativity, curiosity, and character. His wife and daughters are musical, too. And while cooped up together, the Cullinans recorded a song called Stay at Home about the family's shared experience. The song kicks off with 15-year-old Riley. We're all gonna be home for a while. So if we gotta do it, 
Then let's do it in style Well, what can you do when you are stuck at home And you are all alone with your family Well, you can bug your mother Or just draw an album cover of the greatest band That you never will see Or maybe close your eyes and just imagine I am playing with you in the yard And we'll make it through and we can reach for each other Yeah, we can love one another And we can stay at home and be alone Cause I'm with you, yeah, it's true You can write a play or just enjoy the day And you can sing a song or two You can play a game and you can call my name and I Send a hug to you You know it's how you make it If you gotta fake it You can shake away all those Stay at home blues And we can laugh with each other Yeah, we can lift one another And we can stay at home And never be alone Cause I'm with you Yeah, it's true there may be others, friends and fathers, sisters, brothers Who have it harder than me and you Get on the web or text or call Yeah, we can still connect us all A friend or something you can always be And do reach for each other Oh, move over, Partridge family That stay at home performed by Lone Tree musician Dr. Noise And his family, the Cullinans I'm Ryan Warner, thanks for spending time with us this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. And we-